I saw people like you and um, people who had been doing this for years and it's been working really well. Uh, and I trusted the process. I, I believe the people that trained me that if I do this the way Jim Mall's been doing it for 20 years, if I do the same thing, because I'd never sold anything to anybody ever, um, but I can talk to people. Plan to fail so you won't. Production will solve all your problems. Some will, some won't. Stop whining, so what? Just hit your weekly production goal. The weekend starts now. Our podcast this week is with Logan Schellenberger. Logan is the father of five amazing children, ranging in age from 9 to 21. He has been selling final expense life insurance since 2008. Logan came out of the starting blocks at full speed and has not slowed down since, always finishing in the top five in agency production. Before that, he taught English in China for seven years and sixth grade for four years. He loves playing soccer, watching any Cleveland team compete, and spending time with his children. Logan resides in Stowe, Ohio. Welcome, Logan. All right. Good morning and welcome. Thanks for being on here with us. Um, let's start out with a non-trivial question. What, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, trail mix. Awesome. <laughs> Any certain special kind? I make my own. I got what do I got in here? I got peanuts, raisins, blueberries, uh, M and M's, um, and chocolate covered. Uh, I guess those are raisins. Sounds good to me. Sounds so, real good. That's breakfast, and usually it's lunch too. <laughs> All right, so um, I'm familiar with some of your accomplishments and things like that, but I have no idea in the order that they go. So let's start uh, kind of back at the beginning. What was your childhood like? How did, where did you grow up? What did your parents do? I uh, grew up in Stowe, Ohio. Dad was um, American history teacher and school counselor, um, along with the chess coach and the um, mom. Um, Worked at uh, Little Tykes, uh, worked in the daycare. Um, yeah, I have three older sisters and a younger brother. So, are you pretty good at chess then? Um, you know, friends of mine were making fun of me the other day because they discovered I was on a travel chess team, is how they put it. And. <laughs> Uh, I was pretty good in high school. I haven't played competitively in quite a while, but we were on a chess team and we, uh, we traveled, we traveled all over the United States on these chess tournaments and, um, got to see, um, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, Terre Haute, Indiana <laughs> one was, time. Uh, was this during high school, uh, high school or college yeah. in high school? High school, junior high and high school. Cool. Who's the best so, chess player in the Schellenberger family? My dad. No, other than he, your dad. You, uh, of you uh, and... Ryan. Ryan was Ryan had a better rating than I did, and Ryan was Ryan was better than I was. So, if I wanted to start learning chess, 
and start getting better. I mean, I, I know how the pieces move, but I don't. I am horrible. <laughs> I, where, where should I start at getting better? Play somebody who's willing to teach you a little bit. Um, you'd probably be best off if you want to at least not embarrass yourself. Learn probably two or three uh, openings. And an opening is um, basically the first 15 or 20 moves of a uh, of a chess game. You, you just memorize certain openings and what to do when the other guy does whatever he does. And um, there's pretty standard openings that will, in the middle of the game, leave you in you know good shape. And there's there's things you definitely don't do. And you kind of got to learn those things as you go. You, you would never want to push the pawn on the on the rook side um, two places up in the in the beginning of the game. That's just it's a wasted move. You'll end up losing it. You'll end up compromising your position. And so there's there's stuff you you, you kind of learn as you play a lot. And it, the best way to learn is just to sit with somebody and you know have them kind of tell you, yeah, you really don't want to do that. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer? I have. That was a that was a good one, and I'm I'm certainly not there where I can play without the board. <laughs> <laughs> I need the board. <laughs> the, I played against the guy who played fifty of us at once once. So, jeez, whoa! I I recently listened to a podcast with a guy who who was Bobby Fischer's best friend for a little while, and he would just sit and learn his games. He would set up the board as Bobby Fisher's games because I guess they're recorded and the moves oh, that, yeah. and he would play both sides of the board to try to oh, learn yeah. what Bobby Fisher did. Did yeah, you I've, I've done I've done sure we've done that's amazing. So um you're on a traveling chess team in high school. Um where did you go after high school? Uh, after high school, I was a foreign exchange student in Spain for a year. Um, and then after that, I uh, went to Chicago, uh, went to Moody Bible Institute. Um, after Moody, I went to Northeastern Illinois University, got a master's in linguistics, a minor in teaching English as a second language, and then uh, ended up in China and taught English for in China for seven years. Was that the goal, or was that just something that you stumbled into? That was definitely the goal, yeah. That, that was the whole point of getting the master's in linguistics to so, work in China. Okay, so why China? It's where the Lord was leading. Um, there's opportunity and there's need. And, uh, you know, it took a couple of years and learned Chinese, and um, I can understand and speak. Uh, writing and reading, I tried for two years, and and it's uh, it's not smart enough for that. So, so you you know it would be called Mandarin, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So you speak that fluently? Uh, fluently-ish. I mean, you know, I know that's it's a, the kind that's... of thing. It's the kind of thing where you you lose stuff if you don't use it every day. I mean, that's so, my understanding. Is that's one of the most difficult languages to learn, right? It's 
there's there's some that are more difficult. The State Department has a scale of one to five on difficulty level, and China, Mandarin is a five. But there are some that are more difficult than that. Mm-hmm. Mandarin has five tones, and like for example, Cantonese has uh, six or seven tones. So there are some that are slightly more difficult. But how many lang- how many languages do you speak? Uh, three: uh, English, Spanish, and uh, Mandarin. Cool. What are some of the um, the crossovers or the um, first things first, if you will, of learning a new language? Because um, obviously your uh, English is first, um, but what did you find the easiest way to, to make that crossover? Well, the best way to learn a language is to revert to childhood. Just be like a child. Um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. You have to laugh at yourself. Uh, if you take it all seriously and you get upset every time you make a mistake and you get upset when you say something and people laugh at you, you're just not going to do well. It's, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be frustrating. And um, you just have to laugh at yourself and go right back. You know, in, in some ways this is frustrating because all of a sudden you're a reasonably intelligent person and you're speaking the average five-year-old can out-communicate you, and you're just starting all over, learning all new words for everything, learning new words for the for Paris. You know, you got to learn all the new country names and cities that you you know, and they're all they're all just different. And um, the best way to do it is total immersion. Go out on the street every day and um, find some shopkeepers or fruit sellers or people wander in the street and it just practice you just do your little thing and practice and you learn new stuff and um yeah the best way is total immersion do you see any carryover from that total immersion what you're talking about just going up and talking to a stranger in their native tongue that you're still learning and door knocking somebody and just being able to strike up a conversation and and make instant friends and get in their house and and do your job do you see any crossover there sure i suppose there's some in that you have to you know it takes courage you don't know what's going to happen um when you knock on a door uh so you got to and and you just have to be able to handle rejection. Sometimes you'll talk to somebody on the street, you know, and and they their their Mandarin is not standard, or they'll speak a local dialect, and you just you just don't understand anything they're saying, or they'll speak with an accent, and you're just not getting it, and they're not getting you, and they have no patience for you, and you just never know. But um, when you go up to a door, door knocking, uh, it it just takes perseverance and courage and yes i suppose there's crossover there so you were in china for seven years um what what happens next what brings you back to the u.s and and what Uh, help we got sick um and just had to come back here we were three had three kids and um we were last place we were was a place called xining which was way out in western China, about 7,000 feet above sea level and right on the edge of the Gobi Desert. And so there were dust storms. There was low, uh, up higher, of course, there's less oxygen. And um, 
and it just it drains you over time, uh, especially if you have asthma and breathing troubles to start with. So uh, just had to come back and um, China wasn't an option after that. Did the people there have health problems, or are they just? Is it just a, because you're an outsider? Or? Well, I mean, if, with the pollution and the, um, uh, the the dust storms that would bring come in, bring dust storms in from the Gobi Desert, um, yeah, everybody had some kind of you know coughing and stuff when that was going on. Uh, the extra complication for what for us was that my wife has low blood iron and asthma, and um, it just drained her. And over process of years, um, just drained her, drained her, drained her. So, uh, yeah, people there have problems too. And and just like there's some people who live out west in Colorado who um, it may just be best if they just get to a lower altitude if you got lung problems. So. So you might talk a little bit about um, your your work week or your lifestyle there, because uh, obviously we'll bring it up later on with what it's like now. But um, you know, what was the pay like? What was the the hours worked and things like that? How did that play out? Well, I, I taught English at a medical college. Um, I would uh, I, I teach a, a handful of classes. Um, they also had me twice a week um, speaking at a, in front of an auditorium where there'd be anywhere from 100 to 200, 250 people and who would just wanted to hear somebody speak English. And they just said, you have an hour and a half, talk about whatever you want. And I don't know if you've ever sat and just talked about anything for five minutes. I had to do that twice a week, um, talk for an hour and a half. They just wanted to hear somebody talk English. So I had to come up with a list of topics that I could ramble about for an hour and a half. And that was actually one of the most challenging things. I um, I would just find stuff on the Internet, you know, the 10 most challenging sports, and I'd talk about them for an hour and a half. And, and once a week was current events. Um, and then the other week was a prepared topic. Uh, so uh, the other time of the week. So that was that was kind of fun after a while. And um, but then teaching would be, you know, here over there you'd have between sixty and a hundred students in a class. And um, I had my I think my favorite class were my doctors who were. They were all accomplished doctors later in life, you know, married kids, and they just wanted to learn English. And uh, that was a that class was a lot more relaxed. Logan, you mentioned you had uh, three children at the time when you were there. Now, were they school age at that point? Were they, and how did you educate them in China? Did you homeschool or did they? Did we, they have yeah, schools? we homeschooled. The, okay. the two older ones were getting to be school age, um, and so we homeschooled them. Uh, when we were over there. So um, when you came back to China or back to America from China, um, what year was that? Mm, 97 plus 2004. 
Okay. And when did you start uh, insurance? So tell us a story of how that came about. Well, when I came back from the States, um, I found a job teaching sixth grade at a, a local Christian school, and that worked fine. I was really good at it, and I enjoyed it. But um, at that point, uh, well, by the end of my tenure there, I was making $27,000 a year with five children, and... We were on welfare, and um, it just uh, the 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 tax return came back, and I didn't pay off my my bills, and it just it was untenable. This was not a way forward for us, and so I looked around and found, you know, there's a saw an advertisement in a magazine, and um, answered the advertisement, and then started on the path to learning about final expense, and um, I. I went all in. It was only me earning a living, and it was, if this isn't going to work, you know, I've got five little hungry mouths to feed, and this, this, this failure was not an option. This had to work. And um, so I was absolutely 100% fully committed. You know, when, <laughs> when Cortez came to um, and this came and was exploring South America, He, um, they landed in South America, and, of course, they're looking for gold, and and uh, he took all his soldiers, all his people onto land, and then burned the boats. And the message was, this is your life now. There's no going back. You're not going back to Spain. You're not going back to Europe. This is where we are. We burned the boats. We don't know how to build new ones. <laughs> and... That, that was the idea. I, you know, I, I quit my job at the, uh, the school, and it was this, or, yeah, we burned the boats. Mm-hmm. So it okay. had to work. So nowadays, if you're um, at a cocktail party or you're at the store, or some somebody stops you and says, hey, Logan, how's it going? You know, what do you do for a living nowadays anyway? How do you respond to that? Uh, the one sentence answer is I'm in sales. A little longer on life insurance sales. A little longer, uh, I help seniors uh, uh, prepare for uh, prepare for final expenses. And a little longer than that, it's a longer explanation of what exactly it all entails. So, if you weren't doing this job, what do you think you'd be doing? Gracious. No, I might still be teaching. Um, you know, when I was teaching, I was trying all kinds of stuff to earn extra money. I was going to auctions and selling, buying stuff at auctions and trying to sell it on eBay. And I was doing some landscaping for a guy, and I was just scratching, 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 happy to earn, you know, an extra five hundred dollars over the summer. And I don't know, I. Um, no idea. 
I'd probably still be teaching, I guess. Logan, talk briefly, uh, and you don't need to put exact numbers to this if you don't want to, but you mentioned you, made, you were making about $26,000 uh, teaching with uh, five children. And the first year you're in the business, and you've been extremely successful. You were successful right out of the gates. Um, talk about what it was like to adjust to going from making $26,000 to making over $100,000 uh, in, in a matter of a 12-month period. Well, so I started the school ended, of course, in the beginning of June, end of May, whatever it was that year, and I started selling immediately. It was the last day of school, the very next day, I, I hit the hit the ground running, started started selling. And um, the first summer, the first three months, I made more in my first three months than I made in the entire year, you know, working at the school. Um, so, you know, just the just the freedom that brought of um, the, the financial tensions were lowered extravagantly, and we were able to um, sell the house we were in and buy a, a house with seven acres and an 1880s farmhouse and, you know, just make drastic changes in our lives. Um, it, yeah, big changes, so. Did you ever have a fear that <clears throat> this was all too good to be true? That at one point in time the shoe's going to drop, the other shoe's going to drop, and it's like, okay, we're back to where we started. No, um, I saw people like you and um, people who had been doing this for years, and it's been working really well. Uh, and I trusted the process. I I believe the people that trained me that. If I do this the way Jim Mall's been doing it for 20 years, if I do the same thing, because I, I, I'd never sold anything to anybody ever, um, but I can talk to people, and I'm good on my feet, and I've got work, work ethic, and um, I, and and I, you know what, I'm the other thing you need to have in this business is you need to be able to handle rejection and it, it more so now than ever. But, um, I, you know, I never, I never thought that, you know, somebody was going to pull the rug out from an area. This was all going to fall apart. I, yeah, I just trusted the process. What, was your mind like, or how did you justify to yourself uh, when you were told, um, remember how much you made last year teaching? You're going to spend about that much on leads over the next year. How did, how did that go over? Um, I, again, I, I trusted the people that I put my faith in that if, this is if if I go out and I sell four thousand a week and I do my part, it's going to work out, and 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 it has and it did. And um, the uh, I, I wasn't concerned about spending a ton of money on leads because I immediately saw money coming into my bank account, and I saw that if I sell my four thousand a week, I'm going to be able to cover those leads. So I, um, there's a week 
in for me one time that uh you know I'd been out for two or three days and uh, you know had a whole three apps for you know a hundred dollars in my briefcase and I was just getting beat down and and then I run into the the one lady who's ready to spend two hundred fifty dollars a month uh do you have any home run in the bottom of the night stories where you just uh, were getting your butt kicked and finally knocked one out of the park? Probably about every week, right? <laughs> I mean, um, I'm not sure I can tell you a specific story right off the top of my head, but uh, there's, well, I think two weeks ago, um, that that sort of thing was, you know, I had a, I don't know, a 20 and a $30 sale, and uh, I think I sold... Uh, a couple child policies to a lady for seven dollars each or something and um and i i just door knocked the house and the husband and wife were there and we sat down and they each spent i don't know 120 130 apiece and it made the week and it, this was on a card that was probably two years old that i it just you just have you just hit them at the right time, and if I'd hit them two years ago, they weren't ready. And I just, I just said I was in the neighborhood. I knocked on the door, and they were ready, and they remembered the card, amazingly. And uh, so, you you never know what's going to be on the other side of the door, good or bad. Perfect. Let's do the bad one now. Uh, is there a crazy or bizarre kind of war story that really just sticks in your mind? Every week. <laughs> uh, I got the police called on me last week. That's great. That's, that's the awesome. third time that's happened. But this one, this one was the most bizarre. I called the lady. She sent in a card. I called her. Nobody answered. I left a sticky note on the door. She calls me and I was, she left a message, uh, and so I played phone tag. I got a hold of her, and she went, she went ape on me. I mean, she just went absolutely crazy. Who do you think you are leaving this sticker on my door? What, what on earth are you doing? I explained it to her, and she says, well, I called the police, and I asked them who you are, and they told me, which kind of surprised me. Like, really? Do the police know who I am? <laughs> Pretty, pretty famous in those neighborhoods. I guess so. I, I, I guess I had to Google myself to see what comes up, because I guess that's what the police did. But And she says, you know, you didn't leave any any kind of any message on the – you didn't leave anything on the car, on the sticky note. I said, well, I left my phone number and my full name, and it's not like I have a John Smith name. You know, it's Logan Schellenberger. There's not too many of us. <laughs> and and uh, she just – and I asked her, what was your concern when you sent in the card? She said, we really need life insurance. And I said, well, that's what I can help you with. And I, I must have apologized to her probably seven times. I'm so sorry that – and I tried to fall on my sword. I tried to be gracious. I tried to – and she just was loaded for bear, and um, she was swearing at me. She, she was just unhinged. And I, finally that was that. So I, you know, finally got off the phone and tossed the card. Now, she'll 
probably send in another card a year from now, and I'll go sit with her, and maybe she'll be on her meds, and things will be better or something. So. <laughs> I was just going to ask you if you were going to go back to that one. Well, you know, I I trained a guy, Ron Schaefer and his wife. They came up from South Carolina, and Ron's a Vietnam vet and, um, in his mid-60s and just a prince of a man. And, um, and I door-knocked this lady in Euclid, Ohio, and she – and all three of us are standing there, which I was really nervous about. And she let us in, and she was just the sweetest lady, gracious as anything. And we made a sale, and um, and but she needed she was changing bank accounts or something, and so she says, you know, call me in two days, and I'll I'm getting the new bank account information. And so I called her, and she wasn't answering. I left messages, and and that went on for a couple of weeks, and I finally got a hold of her. And she just went absolutely off. Who do you think you are coming by my house on a Sunday? I'm like, that wasn't me. And peering in my window and knocking on the window of my apartment, that wasn't me. And she, she started, again, swearing at me and going just crazy. I don't want nothing to do with you. You're a scam artist. You're a, and I, I, I remember her name, Godspell is her name. <laughs> and... I got another card from her, and I thought, well, all right, I'll call her, and I called her, and she started berating. She didn't remember who I was, but she started berating me for calling her while she had food in her hand. <laughs> I'm like, well, I can call you back, and, you know, I... I have cards still sitting in my stack. I don't know if I got enough bravery to go try that one again. I don't know. We'll see. Sounds good. Uh, in your mind, who's one of the most successful people you know and why? Um, well, you know, of course it'd be Jim. He's been doing this for 28 years or whatever it's been now. And he's uh, just very consistently gone out and worked today and made his goal. And, um, and then just living a life of integrity and uh, husband of one wife and two great kids. I, yeah, that's one of the most successful persons I know right there. Do you have anybody who, um, maybe a famous person or somebody else that uh, you look up to that maybe everybody knows? Um. I think the people I look up to are and and are, are people from history. Um, for example, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a German pastor who gave his life in Nazi concentration camp because he refused to recant his beliefs, and he was actually he was he was um, executed by the Nazis. It was like a week before Germany, that part of Germany, was liberated. You know, he almost made it, but he, he was safe in the state, and he said, i got to go back to my people. I have to go back. And he went back and paid the ultimate price. Uh, so I, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another one would be C.S. Lewis, probably in, in the top five, if not the top two greatest um, write, Christian writers, uh, has written some absolutely amazing 
books on theology, but then also great books of just storytelling, the Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, books are being turned into plays, and he's just an absolutely masterful storyteller. Um, and then another guy would be uh, a guy from India named Ravi Zacharias, and Ravi is um, he is probably the most intelligent person I've ever known. Uh, he uh, goes to college campuses all over the United States and just gives an, uh, we call it an apology, a, a reasoned defense of Christianity. And he'll, he goes to Muslim nations all over the world, and he'll talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. And he is, um, he's got a great British kind of Indian accent. Uh, he lives in Atlanta. And he is an absolutely master thinker. I, I just sit there and I'll, I'll listen to him. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> he is so deep. So I guess those would be three guys that I look up to. Does he have well, any, only, any TED Talks or uh, YouTube stuff or anything like that? You put you put Ravi Zacharias in YouTube and you'll get tons of stuff. Awesome. We'll check it out. Yeah. Logan, have you met him personally? Uh, no. My brother and sister have. Ryan and Tanya have. Um, but I have not. So we used to ask this question in our um, – at our conferences, we used to say, what are you passionate about? And we'd go around the room and we'd write them on the whiteboard or whatever, and every, everybody would say, well, I'm, I'm passionate about helping people. I'm passionate about selling insurance. I'm passionate about final expenses. And we'd just sit up there and kind of shake our heads going, no, it's not what we're looking for. We're, we're looking for when you're done working, when you're done with your job, what are you passionate about going and doing outside of what you do for a living? Yeah, um, it's family and faith. Um, I absolutely love spending time with my kids. Um, and I have a game cupboard at home that has, I don't know, there's probably 70 games in there. And most of them you've probably never heard of. The, the, the latest one is called Exploding Kittens. And I'd highly recommend it. It is an absolute blast. Exploding kittens. So you can get it cheap on Amazon or whatever. You'll love it. The kids love it. My girls are delicate in that way, and they kind of look sideways at me. But once they learn to play it, it's, it's a blast. It's so much fun. So exploding kittens. And then there's really complicated games, uh, Settlers of Catan and... Uh, some train games and um, a lot of cooperative games we play, a firefighting game where we have to work together and escape from an island kind of thing. And um, So that, I just love doing stuff with the kids. Um, and then uh, faith, just being, being useful, being of service to help people, uh, whether it's people who are in tough places in life, and um, just need somebody to um, help them do whatever needs to be done or uh, bring people steps closer to the ultimate answer of why are we here and what are we doing here and uh, their journey of faith. So those, those, I think, would be my two, two things I'm passionate about. 
That's perfect. What do um, what does goal setting look like for you personally, whether it's business or whether it's other goals? Well, I have a goal. I mean, I I um, actually wrote down all my goals this year and have them on a piece of paper by my desk. And um, and there's you know big yearly goals, but then there's also a big yearly goal isn't any good unless you break it. You're not going to make it unless you break it down into pieces, parts, and so the yearly goals have to be broken down into weekly and sometimes even daily. So the weekly goals are the ones I pay the most attention to. You know, sell. In fact, I haven't even told you guys this. Um, you can leave me at four thousand on the charts, but really, my goal this year is to sell five thousand a week. And I'm going out a lot more than I did for a variety of reasons, um, but I. Um, goal setting is uh, um, if you don't do it, you know you've heard, of course, if you shoot at nothing, you'll hit it at every hit it every time, and then you'll end up ten years down the road, pretty much more or less where you are now, uh, not having accomplished much of anything. So you got to figure out what you're shooting at, and then make uh, make accomplishable steps to get you there. Hey, Logan, was uh, was goal setting something you did uh, prior to sales, or is that something you learned since you've gotten into sales? I've gotten more and more specific through the years. I think I've always had things that I've wanted to accomplish, you know, graduate from high school, graduate from college, get a master's degree, get the degree that could help me get to China. Um, you know, so there were always things I wanted to accomplish and so you you put yourself on a, the trajectory the, the path in life to accomplish those things but then as far as very specific things of what I want to do in a week I've just that I've become more and more focused on that over time is there something that you're currently trying to get better at uh, sure I'm, I've run two triathlons this year. I've got two more lined up. So uh, probably the biggest thing there is I need to get down to about two, 210, 210 pounds. Uh, I, ran a, I ran a marathon last year in uh, September, and I will never do that again. Uh, that was because that was a, a friend of mine. Uh, had beat cancer and he wanted to run one last marathon. So, me too. I ran one last marathon, like <laughs> my first and my last, and never again. <laughs> so, um, but a triathlon's just a a lot different of a thing, you know. So, uh, I get better at eating healthier. Currently, I want to get better at um, uh, uh being more intentional about uh, the the exercise, running and biking. Biking next step there is I actually need to go buy a bike. So uh, I'm holding off on that because they're so dang expensive. How how do you view? Because um, I think both a for me anyway, both a triathlon and a marathon uh, sound like a crazy thing to do. And, and I, as you know, I love fitness things, but, um, 
for those people who don't know, a, a marathon would be 26.2 miles of running, only running. Um, a triathlon, you get to run, swim, and bike. Um, and there's different ones, different uh, distances and things like that. But uh, on a triathlon, you're probably going to travel close to 26 miles on different uh, modalities. Why is that different to you? Um, yeah, so there's different lengths. The ones we do in the winter here up north, they are indoor ones. And um, essentially you swim for 20 minutes, bike for 20 minutes, and run for 20 minutes. And the biking is done on a stationary bike, and the, the um, running is either done on a you know an indoor little track or on a treadmill. Um, so you just kind of go as far as you possibly can. Um, the the running for 26 miles and the probably about for me four or five of those miles were walked um it's just a it's just a whole nother animal when you get to change disciplines you know you start off in the water and you swim about a half mile or somewhere between a half mile and a mile depending on the distance you're doing and then you get out and you go um put on some shoes and then you're on a bike and you know biking's just a whole nother discipline and, and whole nother set of muscles used. And uh, then when you're done with the bike, then comes the worst part of all of it, the running, the part I hate the most. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just a whole steady different set of disciplines that you're doing each time, and there's quite a lot of variety to it. Do you have a favorite um, failure, and by that I mean one that you can look back and say, "I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad I failed there uh, because it taught me X." There's a long list of those. <laughs> uh, favorite failure. Um, we can always pass and come back to that one. Yeah, well, I'll I'll ponder that. What's um, do you have a hardest or a biggest obstacle you've had to overcome in life? Yeah, um, it's the one that's currently ongoing. Um, the uh, after coming back from China and getting a. Uh, a Buying the house of her, our dreams, um, my wife decided she wanted to find herself, and that has resulted in her leaving to Connecticut and um, a long series of disastrous choices she's made and uh, some mental illness, and it's just that's that's been a horror, an absolute horror for everybody involved. And that is, I've come to the point, and I kind of knew this is where I needed to end up in when this started, but it's been a long, torturous journey to get there, and a lot of people aren't going to agree with my theology here, but um, when... Christ was on the cross, God planned that, and that was what was best 
And when suffering happens in my life, it is from the hand of God. And all this horribleness and all this ongoing, even more horribleness is still, it will, it will go on for the rest of my life. And it is from the hand of God, because God could change it if he wanted to, but he has chosen not to. And um, he is allowing this to happen. I don't understand why. I see little glimpses of why here and there, but a lot of it's shrouded in the mystery of God. And my role and responsibility is to be a man of purpose and faith and um, integrity for my kids and um, the this is this is from the hand of the Lord and I I don't like it um, but though he slay me yet will I serve him is where I have to end up and do you believe that that through that suffering, um, it has made you stronger or closer to him? Sure, of course. Yeah. I mean, suffering makes you better or bitter, and it's your choice. And and bitter is a choice that sometimes we make and sometimes we temporarily come to. But if you end up stuck on bitter, um, then you end up with being some of the people we meet who just, they weren't always nasty and angry, but life happened and they made choices not to react well to the bad things that happened. You know, suffering and terrible stuff's going to come to all of us. It is. Whether it's going to be job loss or sickness or family upheaval or whatever, it's, it's going to happen. That's part of life. And how we respond to it, that's that's going to make, make the difference between those who turn um, you know, the lemon to lemonade thing, those who let it destroy them and those who um, choose to remain soft, even though horrible stuff happens. Now, obviously, you didn't choose this suffering, but some people would say that your your triathlon is suffering. Uh, is there any... Oh, is Absolutely. So, I, <laughs> I know. Uh, is there anything else you willingly choose to suffer through? Um, you know, part of the disciplines of growing as a Christian, uh, there's the disciplines of the Christian life. One of them is fasting, purposefully going without food. And while there are health benefits to it, that's not why I do it. The reason or fasting is that when that time, you use that time when you ordinarily would be eating to uh, pray or read or study or communicate and commune with the Lord. And when those hunger pains come, instead of satisfying them with food, the idea is to those hunger pains remind me that I need to be um, talking to God. I need to be listening and a, 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 a real relationship with the living, true God is a, a two-way communication. And part of where a, 
the hardest part, at least for me, and maybe for many of us, is the listening part. Just the turning off the phone, the sitting there and being quiet, the letting the Lord talk to you either through your spirit or through his word. And so, yeah, that's, you know, going without food is is um, not a not an easy thing to do, but it's a necessary thing in, in growing spiritually. Yeah, I love that. And I, I like how you started off with, you know, the health benefits, because uh, right now there's this huge shift in in um, the health realm that says, you know, you should be fasting and you should be doing meditation. But if you talk to any Christian, they're going, yeah, that's kind of what we've been preaching for 2000 years, you know, it's like, <laughs> exactly. I don't know how this is new or different or enlightened right. by any means, but I, yeah, it, it kind of makes me chuckle, but, uh, what let's lighten things up a little bit. What's one story, uh, your friends or family always tell about you. I guess you'd have to ask them, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. That's right. Um, How about um, on a weekly basis? You've been successful a lot. Uh, I think you were the top producer last week, as of the the conversation we're having now. But uh, do you still have the elation, or is it just expected now? Um. You know, every every week we start off unemployed, and I've got a stack of cards that, you know, maybe they'll answer the phone and maybe they won't, and maybe they'll be home when I knock on the door and maybe they won't. Um, but the uh, the elation. No, I don't think there's. I don't think there's the, the the real high in the elation of the first you know year or two in the business because I I expect that I'm going to it's it's a numbers game you just got to see enough people twenty to twenty five people a week make six to eight sales a week averaging about fifty bucks every ten doors you knock on you're going to make a sale. I mean, that's, that's just how the averages work, and I keep real close track of this and have for many years, and that's just how it is. It's been a little tougher lately, and I'm starting to figure out why. But um, it's, it's a, it's a, there's science behind it, and it's a numbers game. So how long had you been selling when – you brought Ryan into the business. Not long. He it was about a year. He, you know, he he's a teacher also, um, but he uh, he was pretty skeptical about it, and he just kind of sat back and said, "Well, let's see how this works." And I, he and I even recently had talked about one of my selling jobs for him. When I said, you know, Ryan, wouldn't this be amazing that we could both be selling and then once a year our families could go on these amazing vacations together? 
And in fact, here in June, we're going we're going to Alaska together on the Alaskan cruise. And then uh, next year, we're looking forward to the the Trinity trip to to Hawaii, and we're both working towards that. And we get to go to these amazing places all over the world together. Um, so he sat back and watched for about a year and saw that, and I was really open with him, telling him how much money came into the bank account, what the you know, what was happening, and he he thought, well, you know, heck, if Logan can do it, anybody can do it, right? And Ryan is your younger brother, right? Yeah, about two and a half years younger. Okay. And uh, I, I'm wanting you to tell the story about when um, he had his first two or three weeks and was just going gangbusters on this thing. And I I remember my dad telling me the story that you called him going, why is he so good at this and why am I not so good? And dad said, well, you know, you're, you're kind of getting jaded after that first year realizing it's a real job and he's still on that high. So uh, can you tell that story? Well, he's still better at it than I am. <laughs> he, he still teaches 60% of his time, and then he sells two, uh, one full day a week and two after uh, late afternoon evenings a week. And uh, last year he did quite a bit better than I did. Um, this year I'm just a tiny little bit ahead of him. Um, but he uh, he's really good. At what he does, but yeah, that story was that um, I was just struggling to bang out four thousand, and sometimes only getting two or twenty five hundred or three. And he's just every week four thousand, five thousand, six thousand. Um, it was sort of the, the the student passes the teacher kind of thing, right? So, um, but then we've each had. You know, we, we talk to each other now a couple times a week and tell each other war stories, share with each other trends that we see going on and um, tips and ideas. And, hey, did you know that this company does this? And, oh, that's new. And so we, it, you know, we were close before this. And this, this has now just given us even more opportunity to talk and spend time and share lives together. You talked about um, keeping track of things and you take uh, meticulous notes and have spreadsheets, um, but it's not just over uh, production and things like that. You track door knocks and, and probably certain things that especially new agents wouldn't even think about tracking. Um, did that start right away, or is that something that you thought halfway through I should be keeping track of this stuff? Uh, how did that come about? Um, it, it started with wanting to track, do I get, am I getting paid on the stuff I'm doing? So just keeping track of that. And then then it went to, is this this, this, this code? Kent, Ohio, 44240, it feels like I'm putting a lot of work and money into this zip code. It's just not. And so then I started tracking how many sales am I making to each zip code? And is there zip code worth mailing? And, and indeed, Kent, Ohio is not worth mailing. And neither is Hudson, Ohio or Stowe, Ohio. It's just it's a little too wealthy. And so I 
I, I have a yellow pad of paper that I write my appointments on, and at the end of the week I can go back, and every time I knock on the door, they, they get a little slash mark. I put DK, door knock, slash, and um, I'll... Right now, I'm knocking on about 50 doors a week. I'm doing a lot of door knocking. Um, and that's what it's taking to, to get to the four and 5,000. Uh, but it's slowly progressed over time to figuring out um, what, what do I need to know to become more accessible to work smarter. Because uh, I can, I can just mail a whole bunch of zip codes and just go out, bootstrap it, work the keister off. Uh, but you, if, if there's a zip code that's just not paying out and not doing well, then I don't want to keep throwing thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars at that zip code and not getting a return. The other thing I figured out is that in order for a zip code to be worth my trouble. I need to be able to make about a 300% profit, meaning if I spend $2,000 in lead mailing a zip code, I need to be able to make $6,000 worth of sales. And if I make anything under that, it's not worth going to that zip code. And that's a pretty easy thing to track. Sure. Contentment versus drive um, seem to be arguing tenants. Uh, what drives you? What pushes you out the door to do knock on 50 doors every week? That's a lot. Um, Ryan, my brother Ryan describes it quite adequately of the, in his case, four, in my case, five little chirping birds that we have at home. <laughs> How do you ask questions? Um, and by that, I just mean, you know, in the home, we uh, we get to ask Social Security numbers and bank accounts and stuff like that. Um, have you perfected this this art of asking questions? And does that have any carryover to, you know, everyday life, uh, being able to, to ask for things or, or ask in such a way that, that you get the result that you are looking for? Yeah, some, sometimes my... My family will, will 
don't even do it intentionally, but they're like, you're trying to sell me. Because I'll use some of the, you know, unconsciously use some of the things that we've learned in selling to try to, you know, steer a conversation. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that we put that you learn in selling is apply pressure and relief. So if you, if you put somebody under constant pressure, 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 they're not going to like it. It's not going to be comfortable less likely to make the sale, but so you want to apply pressure of, you know, hey, this is the need that you have. You want, you know, Johnny and Susie to have to scrounge around for $10,000 once you die. But then you release the pressure, and you talk about, you know, the bowling trophy, or you talk about the dog that's on her ground, or you, you, or you talk about the grandkids, or whatever. And then you come back to the pressure, and then you apply pressure, and I'll, I'll find myself, or my family will tell me that I'm doing that conversation. <laughs> you know, you need a summer job. And then I'll release the, release the pressure and then come back to my son. You, you have to get a summer job. There is no more playing and on computers on your, your, your tank game all summer. We're not doing that again. Apply pressure and release. Apply pressure. And it works. <laughs> but, but, um, Now, how about now? Uh, how about if uh, one of your sons or daughters um, said, "Hey, Dad, you know, I want to do what you do." How do you respond to that? Um, I think they have. You know, right right now they're all teenagers. Um, If they want to do it, what I want to, what I do, I'd be happy to train them and, and teach them how to do it. Uh, I don't think that's any of their dreams currently, and I think they'll all end up doing other things. But life's funny. I never thought I'd end up doing this. Here I am. So uh, if they wanted to do this, I'd be happy to train them and show them the ropes. I want to come back uh, to your favorite failure. Did you think of a, a favorite failure that you had in the past? Um, very, very early on. Uh, this only ever happened to me once. Fill out the application, and I asked the guy his social, and he really he bought at giving me the social and in the end he wouldn't give it. He did not give the social. This was maybe six months into doing And it was gonna be a nice sale. And he just would not give the social. And from that experience I learned a number of things about um, uh, about asking for sensitive information. And you know, you start with you start with not sensitive information. 
once in a while somebody will balk at it a little bit. I have some stories ready, and I have some reasons why we have to have the social. And the best one is the Patriot Act. Um, do you really have to have the social for, for this? Well, you know, it used to be that you didn't, but when the when 9-11 happened, part of the Patriot Act, they figured out that people were laundering money through life insurance policies. And so now all life insurance policies are required to have the social security number for identification. And if, if I turn this in without a social, it will never get issued by federal law, period, full stop. So if you want life insurance, that's just the brave new world we live in. And I've never had a problem since. But without that initial failure, I wouldn't have developed those stories, and I wouldn't have also developed the slowly getting to the harder questions, the more sensitive ones that people are maybe a little more hesitant to get out. Yeah, I, I used that the other day, and I basically said, you know, if, if you're not willing to give me your social, um, my company assumes that you're a terrorist. And I mean, I had, I had a good relationship with this person, you know, so we laughed and they gave it to me anyway, but it was just one of those, you know, little, little side story to get them laughing and, you know, they, they right. given it to you anyway. So, um, if you could go back and visit yourself at say 22 or 23 and give yourself one piece of advice, what would that be? And place us, were you in China at that time? In 22 or 23, I was um, living in Chicago getting my master's degree. Uh, you know, the, the first answer that comes to, head, to my top of my head is the wrong one, and that's that I should have married differently. But if I had married differently, I wouldn't have the five amazing kids that I have today. And um, I will never regret marrying somebody who ultimately turned out to have some pretty complicated mental situations going on um, because I got five amazing kids, really healthy, really great kids. And the consequences of long-term of that marriage is that it's caused a massive amount of pain, but with pain comes growth. So um, to answer your question, the 22-year-old guy, I would have um, I don't know that I would have done a lot very much differently, quite honestly. That's perfect. Let's uh, take it one step further, though, and uh, let's say you're living your ideal future. You're old and gray and retired, and you could come back and uh, talk to yourself now. What do you think you would give yourself as advice now? Be patient. Keep doing the, doing the things that you already know to do. Um Stay connected to the Lord. Stay connected to uh, people. And um, in, in 
little obediences over time build up into um, a life of integrity, and the opposite of that is little failures or um, little poor choices mount up over time to uh, create a lot of trouble down the line of lack of uh, lack of integrity. People don't trust you. Um, you just end up in, in 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 hard, hard, hard places over the long term if you if you're not uh, practicing the, the just doing all the small things that build up into a life of integrity. That's great. Um, we could probably go on forever. I've got uh, just a few more quick draw questions. Hopefully the, they're quicker questions. Your answers don't necessarily have to be quick. But uh, what's one experience that you believe everyone should try at least once? She was uh, everyone. Big group. Um. I think everyone should get out of their comfort zone and serve somebody who have no opportunity or ability to give back to you, whether that's at a soup kitchen or in Guatemala with these desperately poor people that I was with in January or, um, uh, helping tutor kids at the you know, inner city program or something, just giving to somebody, helping somebody, and, and even doing stuff anonymously where they have no idea where that $50 came from in the mail, and they have no way of tracking it down. But that's what the Lord told you to do, and you do it. Just serving somebody that have that has no where there is no opportunity for them to give back to you because it's the right thing to do. That's awesome. Um, are there any books that you've read multiple times or is there a book you find gifting often or telling people, hey, you got to read blank? Two books. Um, one I've probably read five or six times. It's called The uh, Tale of Three Kings by a guy named Gene Edwards. And as I, I started reading that in high school, I think it was the first time I read it. And it is just the simplest. It's probably 40 chapters in it, and some of the chapters are 150 words long. And it's the dual story of... What do you do when? Um, what do you do when you are hurt by leadership, especially in the Christian context? And and it tells the story of uh, David, who was serving a, a, a king, Saul, who was unhinged, and David refuses 
refused to, refused to lift his hand against Saul when he had multiple opportunities. And then the second half of the book flips it around of, what do you do when you're the king, David, and somebody fights against you, his son Solomon, or his son uh, Absalom. And it just walks through, what do you do when you are in a position of responsibility and you are unfairly maligned and attacked? So that, The Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards, and then a book that I carry around with me and hand out occasionally, um, and it's called, let's see, he gave up the last one. Um, see if I can remember the name of it. Uh, I thought it was Kratos on there. If I can remember it, I'll tell you. That's the next question. <laughs> Do you have any specific morning rituals other than uh, trail mix? evening or before bed do you do anything before you turn out the lights on a regular basis um i think usually the last thing i do is um go to sleep praying and that's probably the last thing there's a, a question. Um, I, I don't remember where I heard it. If it was on uh, Christian radio or uh, somebody asking one of my one of my priests or something, but they said, "Isn't it um, isn't it bad that I fall asleep in the middle of my prayers? Uh, shouldn't I finish them and then fall asleep?" And the answer was, "Couldn't you think of a better way to be?" I couldn't think of a better way of of falling asleep than in the arms of the Lord. Do you have any yeah, yeah. any response to that? Yeah, and that's exactly right. I if I'm going through if if, if my mind if I'm cycling through the events of the angry person at the door or the events of the court horribleness that is still ongoing. Um, I don't sleep well. I got stupid bad dreams. I just, I, I, I don't even often, it's hard getting to sleep. But when I'm focused on just going through the people I love in my life and even, and the problems and trials and situations and just bringing that before the Lord and begging for mercy and grace, um, yeah, it's a much better way to go to sleep. Do you have any quotes or sayings or mantras or Bible verses or anything that you keep around as a constant reminder? David Burnham, pastor I grew up with, 
said, truth and time go hand in hand. And that one I have clung to. What are one to two things that people can do or change in the next week or two that would have a drastic impact in their lives? Um, Consistently read the Word of God and consistently look for ways to serve the significant people in your life and strangers. Do you have any uh, podcasts, books, resources, websites that you want to point people to to check out? I don't know if I've ever listened to a podcast or even how to get onto one, so that, that would be no on that one. Um, you know, the... There's, there's just tons and tons and tons of great literature. So, you know, the Word of God for direction in, in life, if you want a, a great magazine for kind of talks through the issues of the day, uh, there's a magazine called World Magazine, um, which just puts a great perspective on the news of the day and gives just um, great resources for, I found, books on there that my kids just love when I read them books. And I'll just go to the little page in the, in the magazine that has suggestions, and I just um, they have some great suggestions on there for stuff for kids and adults. And it just gives a great perspective uh, that, that we're not getting on any of the news networks of looking at you know, look, looking at the world through a biblical lens. Where can people find you? Do you do any Twitter or Facebook or anything like that? Well, I'm on Facebook. I update it about twice a year. Um, so you can find me, and there's some old picture on there. I probably look on Facebook about twice a month. Uh, I've never been on Twitter and have no plans to be. Um so, oh, yeah, I guess you could find me on Facebook. Very good. Last question here. Um, what would you like for your personal legacy to be? Oh. That, um, he loved the Lord as God with all his heart, his mind, and his soul. And he served others above himself. Man, that's awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to be on here with us. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Logan. You did a great job. Thanks, guys. You bet. See ya. Take care. Stop by oneanddonetraining.com. That's the number one, A-N-D-D-O-N-E, training.com. There, you'll find our blog, media library, and ongoing training to help with your final expense career. Thanks. We'll see you there.